Great, we are uh, today in John chapter 13, and I'd like to start by saying that if you met me a few years ago, there would have been two things I've told you. Number one, I don't do running, and number two, I don't drink coffee. Now, if you're speaking to me then, it would be inconceivable that I do either of those two things. Um, and I had good reasons for both. I was very much of the Proverbs 28, verse 1 school of thought in terms of running. Anyone familiar with uh, Proverbs 28, verse 1? Well, the Good News translation says, only the wicked run when no one is chasing them. <laughs> and if I didn't have a purpose, there was no way that I wanted to be out running. It seemed like pure craziness to go running and to be constantly thinking about the pain that you are in. Um, thinking of getting a, a running uh, club with that t- verse on the back, Proverbs 28, verse 1. So now, talking to me and now and say, back then, I think there's no way that I'd actually enjoy running. I'm even training running a half marathon in London in two weeks' time. There you go. What's great about that, if you say it really quickly, it sounds like I'm doing the marathon in London, the London Marathon. (laughs) So um, that's what I'm going for, half marathon um, in a couple of weeks. And then with regards to to drinking coffee, for years, Vicky and I had a no hot drinks pact. So when we go around to people's houses, you say, I'll come for tea or coffee, and you say, yes, but really we're going to have a glass of water or a squash. But it doesn't sound quite the same, does it, in terms of that invite. So for most of our married life, um, we've been no tea and coffee. But then over the last few years, maybe I'm growing up, I don't know, um, I started drinking tea and coffee. And if you speak to to Vic, it's still a bit of a sore point that I've abandoned her into the world of coffee drinking. And to be fair, I I didn't have such strong scriptural basis for not drinking coffee. The only thing I could find, uh, Psalm 1, which says, do not sit in the secret seat of mockers. That's the, (laughs) the closest I could get to a scriptural basis for not drinking coffee. Um, But what was unthinkable just a few years ago has now happened. There we go. (laughs) We can praise the Lord for for deliverance and the miracles happen. Um, In the passage that we are looking at today, the unthinkable happens not once, but twice. Jesus says that two of his disciples would either betray or deny him. how, How can this be? How can one of the 12 disciples that have been with Jesus day in, day out for three years, they've seen miracles, they've seen healings, they've seen feeding of the 5,000, they've seen the water turned into wine, they've seen the dead coming alive again. They've had powerful preaching, but Jesus speaking with an authority unlike anyone else. They spent time up close with, with Jesus. They know he's not a fraud. They know he's faithful, loving, wise, and powerful. How could this unthinkable thing happen twice? How could one of them betray him? How could they turn away after all they've seen? Well, today's passage helps us when we face unthinkable situations. When life feels too messy, too hard, like there's no one in control, when we're grappling with real issues, whether it be failing health, with broken relationships, with the challenges of life that just don't seem to make sense. Because Jesus meets us in the dirt. He meets us where we are. Last week, we saw how Jesus literally got amongst the dirt of the disciples' lives and washed their feet. 
what he does very practically in that instance, he also does in coming alongside us in the hurts and the realities of life. And we are to reject the lie that we are too messy to come to God. He knows our heart. He knows our greatest need. And as we work through the Gospel of John, we're now coming with a cross, coming closer and closer into view, and the greatest expression of love in the sacrifice of Jesus. So let's uh, read our passage. We're in John chapter 13, page 1081. Uh, Vicky's going to come and read, and we're starting from verse 18. Jesus predicts his betrayal. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified very truly I tell you one of you is going to betray me his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant one of them the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said ask him which one he means leaning back against Jesus he asked him Lord who is it Jesus answered It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Thanks. We see the remarkable nature of Jesus coming through in this passage. Jesus chose to be betrayed so that we can know the unfailing love of a saviour. Judas chose the reward of 30 pieces of silver but Jesus chose to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus will soon be crucified. Judas, the betrayer, racked by guilt, kills himself. Peter does go on to deny Jesus after his arrest, but ultimately Peter becomes a key foundation stone for the church. Jesus doesn't let our brokenness and our mess stop us from knowing him. 
What's left is, is the question of, of our response. Judas surrendered to Satan. Peter, in his weakness, surrendered to Jesus. And we can see the, the trajectory from earlier in the gospel. John 6, verse 68 says, Simon Peter answered Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. You see Peter's heart there. Where else can we go? But Judas doesn't come to this place of confession and trust in Jesus. It's not a matter of Peter being more qualified or a better family history. He came with a repentant heart and placed his trust in Jesus. And so as we face the unthinkable, whether it be rejection, betrayal, or the brokenness of life, whether we feel abandoned by God or just don't know where to turn, the truth is that Jesus chose the cross to come and meet us in our mess. Jesus chose to be betrayed. And we are to know Jesus chose to go to the cross and disarm the powers of hell, and he chose to live his life as a model of love. So as we walk through this week, as we walk through our lives, what are we to hold on to? Well, the first thing I want us to see is that God knows. God knows. Verse 19, we read, I'm telling you now, this is Jesus saying, I'm telling you now before it happens, so when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Because Jesus knows exactly what is going on. He's not living in ignorance while everyone around is aware of what's happening. There's no whispering between the disciples of, what's going on with Judas? He's not quite right. There was, when Jesus said this, they were staring blankly at one another. They didn't know what was going on. But Jesus knew. And as you read through the Gospels, it's notable that Jesus is always in full control, even when the circumstances seem to be going against him. Even at his trial before his crucifixion, Jesus stands accused, but there's a confident authority that pervades the narrative. Jesus knows what will happen, and he wants his disciples to know this too, so that when Jesus is betrayed and killed, their faith won't be rocked. Because the questions will come, just as we have questions in the challenges of life. If Jesus can be betrayed in this manner, is he still wise? Is his power diminished? Is he actually the Messiah as he claimed to be? In this verse, Jesus is saying, I know what will happen, and it's okay. And he says this so the disciples would believe that he is the great I am. He is the one who creates and sustains the world. Every breath that everyone takes, even Judas, is given by God. Jesus knows his heart and his mind. It's important to know that Jesus isn't simply a, a helpless victim desperately trying to maneuver a sinking ship. It's not that he's seen the writing on the wall. He's actually chosen this path. This is part of the plan. He knows that Judas will betray him. He knows that Peter will reject him. In fact, this is the, the third allusion to Judas's betrayal just in this chapter. This is not a problem to overcome. This is part of the plan. God knows. And God knows your situation too. He's always known. What you're grappling with now, 
what may, you may feel is completely blindsided you, come out of nowhere, he knows. He knows you and he loves you. I'd love just to read these words from Psalm 139, just to, to minister to you. If you're in that place of, does God really know? Does God know the place that I'm in? Just allow these truths to sink into your heart. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Let's allow these truths to sink into our hearts, to shape how we view the situation that we are in. None of us are hidden from him, whatever it feels like. And the incredible thing is that God knows the situation of every person in this room. And we are to know that the one who knows is the same God of Psalm 93 that we read at the start of this meeting. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The world is established, firm, and secure. Not only does he know, but he's in full control and has full power. And we're to know that when the unthinkable happens, the storms of life coming, but nothing can shape the almighty power of God. And this is so important to know, especially when there's pain in our life, when there's trouble in the world. We ask, is God in control? Um, growing up, we had a postcard on the wall in the kitchen, um, and it says, uh, for those who are listening um, uh, online, it says, um, relax, God's in charge, and it has two penguins, um, one has a giant fish on its head. Um, it only occurred to me this morning um, that this may have been comfort for my mum in trying to parent me and bring me up, <laughs> um, but sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? What on earth is going on? Is there actually one, anyone in charge? We can feel, sometimes it feels more, more trivial. Other times there's deep pain and deep challenge. But we're to know, in the midst of being disorientated and confused, keep coming back to this truth. God knows God is in full control. And we're to come to God with our questions. God, what is going on? And to know that whatever happens is not outside of his power. And so the question for us today is, will we surrender to the Lordship of Christ? Even when we don't understand, will we trust that God still knows? Judas would not submit. He chose to go his own way. But Peter, for all his failings, had a heart that was fully surrendered to Jesus. In verse 37, the passage we read, it says, I will lay down my life for you. There was that heart, that intention to do it, even if he couldn't fully follow through. Because being close to Jesus doesn't automatically mean that we submit to him. Coming to church doesn't mean that we automatically, we are automatically for God, heart and soul. We need to choose the way of humility and of surrender. Judas remained hard-hearted. Pharaoh saw the mighty miracles of the Exodus, but his heart remained hard. And it wasn't obvious to the other disciples that Judas would betray 
because knew and no one knew what was actually going on on the inside. And it's true, we can fool people. We can say the right things. We can go through the motions. But my appeal to you this morning is, is your heart fully surrendered to God? Do you trust that God is sovereign and do you give yourself totally to him? Because if you believe that God is over all, this is the only choice that really does make sense. And it's the most releasing thing that we can do when feeling overwhelmed by life is to entrust ourselves to the everlasting God, to his sovereignty. He is control, in control and he holds you. God knows. God knows your situation. God knows all things in all time. But God also knows that we're in a battle. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see the themes of darkness and light consistently coming up. And in verse 30, we see Judas stepping out into the night. A real vivid picture of what is going on. Satan has entered into him. We're to know that the work of the devil is real. We're not to be unaware of his schemes. And being a Christian, being in a church, does not mean that we're immune to the impact of the devil. Jesus had Judas amongst his disciples. He was not immune. We are not immune, and we need to be aware. And Satan will often try and distract. He'll try and divert. divert. He'll try and displace. Our weeks get busy, and we lose daily time in the Word and prayer. And so the lie comes in. We don't really need it. It doesn't really do much good anyway. I don't really feel the difference day by day. We have a run of things that come at the weekend and we lose our time to gather in community to worship on Sundays and the light comes in. We don't really need it. I can get spiritual input in other ways. We have a disagreement with someone and the light comes in. Working through, is not, working through it is not really worth the effort. We ignore the work of Satan at our peril because the battle is real and God knows this. But God also knows that the victory is won. Listen to this, Colossians 2, verse 13, says, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the hour that Jesus came for. Jesus chose to be betrayed, but he knew that there would be triumph at the cross, making a public spectacle of them. We're to know that the fight is real, but in Jesus we have everything that we need. Jesus wasn't afraid to confront the work of the devil, and he used scripture to do this, and we are to do the same. It's really what we're doing, running the Freedom in Christ course um, on Tuesday evenings. We're using the power of truth to confront the work of the enemy. We don't have the option of ignoring this battle, but if we do, we're playing into Satan's hands. The battle is real, but it belongs to the Lord. Satan meant the betrayal for evil, the defeat of the Messiah, but Jesus turned it for good. The victory of love on the cross could not be prevented. But to remember that we are in Christ. We don't need to live in fear, but we do need to be alert. We're not to be complacent, but to live in confidence that Satan is defeated, that Jesus is sovereign, and that Jesus has triumphed. Jesus models how we do 
deal with issues of real pain that run alongside the living on this victory. We're not to be triumphalistic about it, but we to know that there is a triumph. Jesus models how we live in pain and in glory. It's the second thing I want us to look at this morning. And when thinking uh, of this phrase, pain and glory, my mind immediately goes to rugby. I don't know if anyone else can associate with that. Uh, there's the World Cup happening, and um, in the course of rugby matches, never are people so often bloodied and bruised for the sake of the ultimate victory. Um, in all honesty, again, public confession, I do generally prefer football rather than rugby. I would not normally go out of my way to watch a rugby match. I know that all, um, probably some of you will switch off for the rest of the, the sermon and have lost all cre- credibility. But I will say, if you're watching a football match after watching a rugby match, the behaviour of the football players is disgraceful. As soon as they get touched, they roll around in agony. But Rugby players, they get hit and they keep going and going and going. But it's for the sake of the greater glory of winning the match, winning the World Cup, whoever that may be. Um, So just as in rugby, Christian life involves both pain and glory. Notice this in verse 21. Um, After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And notice there, Jesus was troubled in spirit. J.B. Phillips translates this as Jesus was clearly in anguish of the soul. And this wasn't an isolated incident. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus feels the pain of betrayal. He weeps at those who turn from him. And so we must allow ourselves to be troubled. This isn't weakness. This isn't doubt but an honest expression of the pain that we're feeling. And sometimes we can behave like those rugby players, battered, bruised, and pretending that actually this is not impacting me, this is not affecting me. We're to be real about the pain that we are in. Jesus offered bread to Judas, a sign of deep love and of hospitality. Jesus washed Judas' feet. He spent time with him. He was his friend. But Jesus betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And today you may feel real pain. You may have been betrayed. Come to Jesus. He knows. He knows what it's like. You may have been the one who's betrayed Jesus or or someone else. You may feel that you've been let down by God or maybe circumstances haven't turned out the way you hoped. Jesus meets us where we are, and he appeals to our hearts. We can know real pain now, and we're not to deny that, but our hope is in what Jesus has achieved at the cross, and we're to remember that the Son is forever glorified. Let's look at verse 31. When he was gone, that's Judas, when Judas had gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So when the Rugby World Cup is won by the right team, um, the cup is raised in, in victory, the pain of all those previous matches will fall into the background. And when we see the glory of the cross, our perspective changes. Here again, we see the unexpected nature of the kingdom of God. 
Jesus is sovereign, but the battle is real. Jesus chose Judas, knowing that he would betray him. And now Judas has left, and Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now is the hour that Jesus has been speaking of throughout the gospel. And this phrase, Son of Man, references Daniel 7 and the image of the glory and power of the living God, the Ancient of Days. This is who Jesus is. And Jesus is glorified, though not in the way that had been expected. The commentator, John Carson, says that John makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of the cross. The greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. It's at the cross we see God's heart. This is where we see his majesty. This is where we see his sacrificial love. The God of the universe, the Holy One, choosing to take our place. The one who had no sin, choosing to become sin for us. Jesus takes our sin, he nails it to the cross. He takes our shame, and in this act, he deals with the barrier between us and God once and for all, so that all may come and worship and give him glory. There's nothing that can prevent us coming to him. It is done. It is finished. Uh, John Calvin builds on this, saying, The glory of God shines, but nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men. And in short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. Through Jesus, through the glory of the cross, the world is renewed and restored. There's glory in the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus has paid for us and he is forever glorified. Jesus couldn't, uh, sorry, Judas could not accept this vision. He couldn't accept the showing of mercy and compassion. We're to know that there's real pain now, but this is nothing compared to the all-surpassing glory of Christ displayed at the cross and the future hope that we have for all eternity. And the truth is what we're to live in now, and we're to take to a broken world through um, the final thing I want us to look at this morning, Jesus' command to love one another. Verse 34 says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I find it astounding that right in the middle of Jesus speaking about betrayal, and denial, of rejection, of acknowledging the pain. Amidst all of this, he gives this command to love one another. Where there's so much pain and challenge, he encourages you, don't get hard-hearted. We're to press in and love one another. It may feel a bit like, you know when you break up a fight between two siblings, you ask them to say sorry, you ask them to play nicely. And then you know two things. When they say sorry, they don't mean it. And then they're going to be fighting again in about two minutes' time. And you think, in the midst of brokenness, pain, and challenge, is it really realistic to set this high bar? As I have loved you, you must love one another. 
there's an important reason to give this command. Jesus is preparing the disciples for the fact that he is leaving. He won't be there to sort out their squabbles about who is the greatest. And this call to love isn't new in one sense. We see it throughout the Old Testament. But there's a new standard. As I have loved you, so you must love each other. This is a new covenant of sacrificial love. One reflects the love of the relationship between the Father and the Son, which we now have access to through the glory of what Jesus has done at the cross. And it's a love about drawing in the nations. It's a love that's only possible because of the perfect love of God. We can only effectively love others when we are secure in the love of the Father. Because if our identity, our security is in affirmation from someone else or from a status or financial security or having everything together as we want it, we won't be able to love effectively. We need to know that we all fall short. None of us have got it together, but we are still loved. So do you know the security of being loved by the Father? Do you know that he loves you in the midst of your mess? Do you know that you don't need to get it together? You need to come with humility to him. Rebecca McLaughlin says this about the parable of a lost son. It's such a, a powerful um, reflection on this famous parable. She says, in one of Jesus' most famous parables, a wasteful son who has taken his father's money and run is welcomed home. Seeing his prodigal child still far off, his father runs to him, kisses him, hugs him, and calls for a party to celebrate. Not because his son is innocent, which he is not, but because he is loved. Friends, we're not innocent, but we are loved. And God wants you to know that here this morning. We can often speak this truth to other people, but he wants you to know it in your heart today. We are not innocent, but we are loved. And this is the foundation that we need in order to show love to other people. We give love even though it's not earned because we're securing the love of the Father. We show love to other people even though it hurts. In the midst of betrayal and rejection is this command to love. And this helps us when it feels like it's just too hard to live in community. Because love is not just about a feeling. It's a choice. Love is a command by Jesus. Love is something that Jesus showed us how to live out with his approach to Judas. How he humbly served him. How he washed his feet. How he showed acceptance when eating together, even at the place of honor next to Jesus at the table. When we think, why should we bother with community? We're to know that Jesus thought it was worth it. Even if we experience betrayal and rejection, we're not to get skeptical or hard-hearted. We can love one another through the most challenging of situations. And as we seek to live our gospel community, we do this in love. And this is what distinguishes us from the world. This is what draws people in. We have been shown radical acceptance. And so we don't love as the world does. We choose love. We choose acceptance. And as we do so, we know that the light shines in the darkness. We can love because we know that none of us deserve the love of God. We are all met in our brokenness. 
On Good Friday, two men died on a tree. Judas chose to betray Jesus and took his own life. Jesus chose to be betrayed and gave his life so that all who trust in him would live. Just in closing, this is Greg Morse on DesiringGod.org. He says, Behold the glory of this second man who laid down his life for his friends. He conspired with his father to undertake punishment as a Judas to save men of Judas's stock. See him willingly betrayed, forsaken, oppressed, writhing under God's wrath to redeem a cursed people from eternal judgment. See him brace the traitor's heel to heal traitors. See him brace the traitor's heel to heal traitors. Jesus came to bring healing. He knows us. He knows our pain. And we are sent with this radical message of a betrayed saviour. One is glorified in, in humble weakness. And so my appeal is we close and we come back into worship is to come to Jesus. If you've abandoned him, if you've been abandoned, if you know you need to choose to live in the good of his love and to demonstrate his love to others, when we stand as we respond. pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this love that is so unthinkable. We thank you that we stand here accepted, restored, because of what you have done. We thank you that we are not innocent, but we are loved. And we choose to look to you. Lord, as we stand here, I pray that you do a work in our hearts. That we would come in wonder and adoration. That we would come in surrender. And come to share what we have received from you. So that you may be glorified in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond in worship together.